0: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
1: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. On today's show, we're going to talk with Dr. Alan Goldhammer, who's one of the world's leading experts on medically supervised water only fasting. And if you have read Fast This Way, or you've at least ordered Fast This Way, You know that I'm open to water-only fasting, but I don't think it's the only way to fast. So I'm like, hey, let's bring in a guy who knows more about water-only fasting probably than anyone else alive. Dr. Goldhammer has supervised the fasting and care for more than 20,000 patients at True North Health Center in Santa Rosa, California, which he founded in 1984. So we're looking at nearly 30 years of experience looking at longer-term water-only fast. There's a lot to learn in today's episode. And this is one of the largest facilities in the world that does longer-term water-only fasting, and they train medical professionals in therapeutic fasting. So we're going to talk about water fasting, when you might want to do that, and when you might want to do other kinds of fasting. Alan, welcome
2: to the show. Thank you for having me.
1: I'm actually really excited to have you on because the chance to learn from people who've done something for more than a couple decades is, is very unusual because there aren't that many people out there who've done anything consistently for that. So I consider you to be, you know, one of the, the, the big figures in fasting who's just consistently done this. So you develop mastery over time and over experience, especially clinical experience. So this is an interview I've been looking forward to for a very long time. So thanks for just putting the time in to become a master.
2: Well, it's my pleasure. You know, I remember when I was about 16 years old, I met a doctor who just happened to be doing fasting supervision as part of his work. And he told me that he had the best job in the whole world because the patients did all the work, the body did all the healing, and all he had to do was take credit for the good results. And I thought, hey, that's the job for me.
1: There you go, right? Like all you have to do is sit there and not eat for a while and you'll be fine. How long do people typically water fast
2: when you're working with them at the clinic? It depends, obviously, on the patient, their reserves, and their condition. But fasting will range from 5 to 40 days. Uh, We don't uh, fast people on very long fasts, over 40 days routinely. Um, The guy I trained with in Australia, actually, some 40 years ago, used to do very long-term fasting, 60 days, 90 days. Uh, extreme long-term fasting but he said that later in his career he discontinued that and by the time I got there he wasn't fasting people over 40 days and I asked him why we didn't do any of this extremely long-term fasting and he said because of sleep deprivation I said oh did the patients have a particular problem with sleeping after 40 days and he says no no the patients were fine it was him that got the sleep deprivation from worrying (laughs) worrying about the patients too much. So it turns out if you keep the fast, from our perspective, relatively shorter, uh, under 40 days, you have um, few complications uh, that arise. If you try to do very long-term fasting, electrolyte balance and other things can become a much bigger challenge. And so just as a uh, a matter of um, routine, uh, 40 days is kind of the cap.
1: Now, when you say water-only fasting, isn't it water plus salt and magnesium
2: and things like that? No, it's actually water-only. We actually use fractionally steam-distilled water-only during fasting. Wow. Um, and there's no there's no supplementation used, whether it be electrolytes or other issues. And there's a, a very good rationale and reason for avoiding uh, supplementation in long-term water-only fasting. It actually dramatically improves the safety. Because it turns really? out that although we're monitoring very carefully electrolytes, potassium, sodium, calcium, et cetera, magnesium, um, there's many things that are not available to monitor. There you can't you can't monitor not either the tests aren't available, you're not you know, you can't do it through serum. And what we've found is there are certain nutrients, including things like potassium, which are very easy to monitor, but act mm-hmm. as reliable rate-limiting nutrients. So as long as potassium is okay. A lot of other downstream things you may not be able to monitor are okay. If you start supplementing potassium, you lose the ability to use those measurable things as rate-limiting factors, and it actually increases uh, complications and the danger that would be associated with depletion issues. So what we have is a protocol that's been well-tested. We've done this actually in over 20,000 patients in the last 36 years, and the people that we trained with had done it with tens of thousands of people. So we know using this protocol this process can be done safely. In fact, we've actually published a fasting safety study, the first fasting safety study that's been published in a peer-reviewed journal uh, that involved tracking all the patients for five years and all of the symptoms and, and classifying them or according to the CATE criteria, the common uh, adverse events criteria, for, uh, on hundreds of patients. And so we know now exactly what comes up and doesn't come up in fasting, and we know that the um, those criteria you know there 's five categories of criteria: the fifth being death, the fourth mm. being life threatening problems, and the third being serious complications so So we know on on hundreds of patients exactly what the likelihood of any given criteria are and i 'm happy to say that in thirty six years and twenty thousand subjects, many of which were very ill, everybody that 's walked in to be able to fast has been able to walk out so we 've had no Um, death associated with it. We had very little uh, serious adverse events. The biggest one would be hyponatremia. So we monitor sodium levels. If sodium levels got too low, that could become a problem, and then that would warrant terminating the fast. And same thing with potassium and other issues.
1: So I've got to ask, okay, so you're you're running out of salt, which can be fatal. This is why some people die during marathons and all. Why wouldn't you just put a pinch of sea salt in and keep going? (laughs)
2: Well, <laughs> again, because the, uh, the, 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 the problem is that the body does a really good job of regulating and recycling and restoring electrolyte balance during water-only fasting. And as soon as you okay. start supplementing, whether it be sodium, that then it puts increased load on other nutrients. It gets complicated, and there's no good long-term safety criteria using supplemented fasting. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you look at the medical literature, where there's complications, myocardial, fibril breakdown, and other serious complications, it's always in supplemented fasting. And I believe okay. it's because if you don't supplement, you cannot fast longer than whatever the rate-limiting nutrient is. And as long as you're monitoring, as we do, sodium, potassium, magnesium, etc., you're not going to, we have arbitrary standards. In other words, once potassium gets below 3.0, that's the end of the water-only fasting. And so in some people, that might be at day 12. Someday it's going to be at day 40. Someday it's never a limiting issue. And and you can't tell with baseline lab what their total body stores are. So you monitor these periodically. And using our protocol, where we're doing twice-daily visits with clinicians where the patients are physically examined twice a day, we're doing minimal weekly blood and weekly urinalysis, and then we chart and correlate those. We know that if we follow our protocols and we use our rate-limiting nutrients, we're not going to get into a likelihood of problems. And and we've been able to prove that. So if you want to start modifying that, now you have to prove that it's safe to do it a different way. And the problem is our arrogance can exceed our ignorance. And so supplemented fasting actually— In
1: medicine? Really? I I can't (laughs) imagine that happening. Alan, how (laughs) dare you say such a thing? (laughs) A a study just came out uh, yesterday— Where they figured out the junk DNA, like, oh, that's actually part of our circadian timing system. And like, every time any scientist has ever said that's junk in the body, like 20 years later, they're going to be eating crow. Like, you know it. So, yeah, there might be a problem (laughs) with arrogance in in all kinds of fields. So, I I get you.
2: So it doesn't mean that somebody else couldn't come up with a system that would be even better or more effective, safer, whatever. But to date, that hasn't been proven. So we're going to go with the system that we have evidence yeah, and support you know and experience with. But again, I'm open to the idea that, that it might be better. But the reason we don't supplement, even though it kind of makes sense, like, oh, if sodium's low, just give them sodium. It's because of a more <laughs> complex, broader baseline understanding of what we're trying to do
1: when you examine someone twice a day during a water fast, what do you look for?
2: So the first thing we do is we take vitals, so we're looking for uh, not just pulse rate but rhythm amplitude and regularity We're also uh, looking at their blood pressure uh, and that might include you know uh, blood pressure uh, uh, lying as well as sitting and the and the change that occurs uh, the orthostatic change that occurs when you have a person sit up okay. and take their pressure we're looking at respiration rates um. And we're uh, looking at other physical parameters. Sometimes you can tell a lot just by doing an abdominal exam and getting an idea of what's going on with liver function. Um, We're looking at um, their presentation of symptoms. So there are certain patterns that we're used to seeing in fasting. Um, For example, early in fasting, the mouth will often coat up and taste like something crawled in there and died. And you people will have foul Odors and and skin eruptions and mucus discharge and low back pain and headache and irritability sounds great, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> really selfish in this. Those <clears throat> yeah, those patterns change as the fast progresses, and a lot of times you'll notice people that come in, for example, if they're quitting, um, if they're addicted to caffeine or if they're addicted to alcohol or they're or, or maybe uh, exercise, you know, drugs. Uh, exercise <laughs> excess usually doesn't create a lot of problems in terms of fasting. I'm just but withdrawing with from caffeine is a really significant symptom. In fact, we try to withdraw caffeine before we actually start fasting because the withdrawal it, symptoms it, are so significant. You don't want to do that. It, at the it's same not a time bad idea. To fast
1: for a long-term fast, so, uh, where you're looking to lower the load, I, I could see that. Okay.
2: Absolutely. And so, you know, these, we're looking for the patterns. And if the patterns are consistent, for example, people get what we call healing crisis, where chronic problems become very acute. And they don't always like it because it's not comfortable. But we know if a person's had, for example, arthritis and their joints swell and they become inflamed, that's usually a positive sign that the body's generating an acute response at, at hopefully resolving a chronic condition. Um, that's very different than problems that develop that we don't expect to be coming up. And part of our job clinically is differentiating what looks like a problem, but it's a good thing, from a problem. Because not everything that happens is always a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. And that's why we're correlating history, exam, lab, and daily monitoring. And by watching people twice a day minimum, um, you really get a chance to be in touch with kind of what the pattern, what the flow is. And it allows us to do a Uh, an effective job of making fasting safe and effective.
1: Now, one of the supplements that I I write about in Fast This Way that seems to work amazingly well during fasting, which is clearly not a water-only fast, is activated charcoal, which reduces (laughs) skin eruptions. It absorbs the LPS from the gut, the lipopolysaccharides that bad bacteria make, that when they get stressed, they make more of it. Is that also something you, you do? You do any toxin binding? Are you doing like enemas or, or poultices or anything, or is it you're just like water and just man man up?
2: Right. Well, we don't use any uh, therapeutic intervention uh, now. You know, charcoal has a long history of of use as a detoxifying agent, but you want to remember. What we're trying to do is give the body a chance to mobilize and eliminate accumulated intermediary products and metabolites as well as toxic products. And so the fact that this body gets a skin elimination, we see as actually an adaptive response, a positive response, not necessarily something to suppress or interfere with. And so although charcoal may not be a suppressive agent, the idea being uh, that these acute responses, as long as they are self-resolving, we see that as a positive sign of the body healing itself, not necessarily something to be interfered with. Okay. Uh, many things you can do will stop the symptoms, but actually, they also stop the elimination. So, we're going to the body take a leave and
1: yeah, take a statin and a leave during your water only fast, and <laughs> you have a very different well, result. That's so a, I'm with you there. Really
2: <laughs> good point. For example, you know lipid levels, cholesterol levels will go up significantly yeah. during fasting, up of to course. 100 milligrams per cent in cholesterol, because in part you're mobilizing fatty infiltrate in the vessels. The place that that goes is in the blood. So, if you take the blood, yep. you're going to find you know, PCB. Uh, levels go up significantly. Now that doesn't mean we yeah. would want to take a killing agent to try to necessarily deal with that during fasting. We want to give the body a chance to mobilize, process, and eliminate these uh, toxic products. And it doesn't. It means that sometimes there's unpleasant symptoms during fasting. It can be an unpleasant process. Our job is to make sure it's a safe process. And you know, clearly we've got a history of being you. able to do that effectively and safely. Um, sometimes those symptoms become concerning enough that you may want to slow the process down and we'll move from a water-only fast to a modified fast. And the introduction of 600 okay. calories of vegetable-based juices can, will dramatically slow down the rate with which these processes are occurring, allow for rehydration, realimentation. I mean, there's reasons why we would choose, for example, to not just continue through water fasting. And that's a decision that's made you know, every day, twice a day, you know whether this still appears to be a net positive process.
1: What's the number one reason that people come to you for longer fasts?
2: Um, well, I can tell you that uh, there are four primary uh, classifications of, of conditions that people come for. Uh, one is high blood pressure. And the reason for that is we've published studies on the treatment of high blood pressure. In fact, we've published a study Um, over 10 years ago uh, that involved 174 consecutive patients that had high blood pressure, and 174 people lowered their pressure enough to eliminate the need for medication. We have the largest effect size that's ever been shown in treating high blood pressure in humans with an average effect size of 60 points in stage 3 hypertension. And that's 60 points, not taking into account that they started on medications and end up off medications and those fast range from five to 24 days in that study wow. we have a second study treating borderline hypertension five to 40 days and again virtually every essential hypertensive patient will normalize their blood pressure and if they're willing to do really dangerous and radical things like eat well exercise and go to bed on time they oh, can man. sustain those results so this that is a condition we treat How, a lot. does it stick around because we've okay. yeah because we've treated a lot of it. We also treat a lot of autoimmune disease. So, you know, as your viewers know, autoimmune diseases are diseases where your own immune system is attacking your own tissues. And so these are the itis conditions, the colitis, the Crohn's disease, the um, vasculitis, the um, uh, the systemic lupus erythematosus. These Autoimmune conditions are often thought to be aggravated by a process of gut leakage, where proteins that you know enter the body, the immune system reacts. Genetically vulnerable people, the immune system gets confused, attacks its own tissues. And so, if you know, if the protein, for example, if you happen to have the HLA-DQ gene and you're sensitive to gluten and you eat gluten and your body attacks your colon, we call it celiac disease. But if if, if, our stomach, if, if it attacks the thyroid, we might call it Hashimoto's thyroiditis. If it, you know, if you notice joint symptoms, we've got uh rheumatoid arthritis whatever the idea being these uh gut leakage related autoimmune conditions respond well as you'd expect to fasting because number one there's no dietary antigens number two there's a powerful anti-inflammatory effect of fasting all the acute phase reactive proteins high sensitivity crp uh fibrinogen pepsinogen whatever you want to measure tends to consistent and predictably go down during fasting so the gut leakage appears to be able to heal and then if you follow the fasting With a health-promoting diet, you can avoid the the free radicals and the pro-inflammatory materials that lead to the gut leakage, and yes, you can control autoimmune disease. You're not curing it, because if you go back to the stuff that causes it, it comes back. But you can manage it, and you can manage it effectively off the prednisone and methotrexate and the other uh, medications that have such dire long-term consequences. We also treat um, a lot of type 2 diabetes. So type 2 diabetes is an insulin resistance cause problem, and insulin resistance uh, means that people are making insulin, but it's not being effectively used. And fasting has a powerful effect at resolving insulin resistance. In fact, it's probably the most powerful tool we have at uh, normalizing uh, the body's ability to use uh, insulin. Um, and so what happens when insulin levels normalize, uh, obviously blood sugar levels uh, normalize. Uh, a lot of the cravings and the binging and a lot of the problems that people have normalized because now their insulin levels aren't bouncing all over the place telling their brain that they're starving to death even though you know, they've got plenty of reserves on board. Uh, the other condition that we've been seeing a lot of lately is lymphoma. So lymphoma is a type of cancer involving the lymph system. And what happened was um, we had uh, some positive results in individual cases uh, with lymphoma. And we published a paper Uh, a couple years ago in the British Medical Journal uh, that involved the effective treatment of uh, lymphoma using fasting and diet and uh, with long-term follow-up. And so then after that case was published, it got a lot of exposure, and then we've been seeing a lot of patients, uh, doctors referring us patients for uh, the treatment of lymphoma. So we're now trying to publish enough, a number of case reports so that we can justify doing a clinical trial. Uh, So... (laughs) Between high blood pressure, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, and lymphoma, that's a big part of the patients that we're treating and the research that we're doing right now in conjunction with our colleagues at the Mayo Clinic, at the Buck Institute, at Washington Universities, and other places that we're affiliating with. Because we've gone from being uh, criminal quacks uh, to cutting-edge <laughs> researchers. Uh,
1: you've you've really taken it uh, taken it uh, to the point where you can do clinical studies and, and all. Um what I want to know, though, is there's a lot of people listening right now saying, okay, um, they've just read fast this way. I've talked about all different types and lengths of fasts and all. But one thing that I don't have a good answer on is what is the longest, safe, self-administered water-only fast that, that you would advise?
2: Well, I personally recommend that everybody fast every day. And I suggest that they do that depending on their goals from 12 to 16 hours, So that means that everybody is limiting their feeding windows between 8 and 12 hours, and that during the time from their last meal, which preferably is at least three hours before they go to sleep uh, at a reasonable hour, um, they have a bit of fasting every day. And people like Walter Longo and others suggest that cumulatively, that 12 to 16 hours of fasting every day may help on a number of levels. It may help prevent overeating, which leads prevents the obesity. It may help induce metabolic changes and biological changes that cumulatively are thought to be protective. Um, and it avoids a lot of the eating for the wrong reasons. Sometimes people eat because they're tired and they should sleep. And sometimes they eat because they're bored and they should engage in productive activity. Or they're mad and they should do exercise or, you know, make the other people eat. But... Um, <laughs> The, the, so this idea of fasting every day and then breaking your fast with break fast, whatever time you know that's appropriate for you, uh, is good. There's also evidence that people that exercise uh, before eating during that yes. uh, intermittent fasting state uh, preferentially gift. mobilize fat. And so it may help keep total body fat down, which is thought to be a, a positive uh, long-term strategy for maintaining health and preventing disease. So um, I think this And I think virtually everybody can do some type of intermittent fasting, even if they're not yet healthy enough to get off their medications and other things. There's still a way to design intermittent fasting that can be done by people at home safely, effectively, every day. Um, I also think that modified feeding regimes where people that are attempting to lose weight can reduce their caloric density, for example, to six to 800 calories, whether they're using a commercial product like Prolon, like Dr. Advocates, or whether they just reduce their diet to, you know, uh, plant-based vegetable foods and other lower caloric density foods, so that they have a a, a lower caloric intake than what they actually need for, for function, can cumulatively help with weight loss facilitation.
1: Doesn't it kind of matter what plants? Isn't plant-based sort of an open window there well we For instance, do heroin we heroin is a plant based substance absolutely. I, I mean i'm being a, I'm and, being extreme there but like alfalfa <clears> like like which plants <laughs> you can't just say plant based without well, it having a meaning
2: yeah what we describe uh, dietary recommendations in exclusively whole plant foods so these are not refined carbohydrates and processed flour products and all the rest of the things that make up 80 to 90% of the carbohydrates that people eat in the diet so we're talking about fruits and, <clears throat> excuse me fruits and vegetables including in our approach, uh, starchy vegetables, the Hubbard squash, the butternut squash, the sweet potatoes, the, the tubers, the starchy vegetable materials yeah, those are the kinds as well of as the green vegetable yet. materials and appropriate amounts uh of fruit, particularly uh, you know, some fruits might be uh more desirable in large quantities than others, your berries, your melons, other things that you know may have advantages because of the fact that many of the fruits we eat today are hybridized, very high sugar foods that are low in minerals and low in fiber content. So you wouldn't want to necessarily just be eating say, a fruit-only diet or something, because that would have you know serious uh, consequences long-term. Um, so the point is, yes, exclusively whole plant foods, but more importantly, from my viewpoint, is eliminating the chemicals that are added to food that make people fat, sick, and miserable. Yes. And those chemicals include SOS, the International Symbol of Danger, or salt, oil, and sugar. So added salts, added oils, and added sugars, from our perspective, have serious consequences, uh, not only in terms of um, uh, allowing... Uh, artificial increased consumption of foods because of the pleasure trap, the artificial stimulation of doping in the brain that comes from these chemicals that aren't really food but food byproducts, concentrated food byproducts that are added to food, uh, eliminating SOS uh, from the diet and keeping it strictly to whole plant foods means you end up with a diet that's around 10 to 12% of calories from protein, about 15 to 20% of calories from fat with the balance coming from whole plant starches not refined carbohydrates and so that's the a a starch that, <clears throat> low fat diet it's it is a high complex carbohydrate diet that's that's moderate in protein and fat and that is 10 to 12% of calories from protein 20 15 to 20% of calories from fat with the balance coming from carbohydrates so it's a higher carbohydrate diet than the people advocating keto diets are advocating because they're going to a higher higher fat low, very low carbohydrate diet Um, What I would argue is that uh, regardless of the short-term benefits of the various dietary programs, and I think you can make a case for just about anything short-term, I'm more concerned about what's the long-term, sustainable, most healthy diet that I can put my patients on. And what we use is this exclusively whole plant food SOS-free diet. And I'm happy to say that we have the luxury of having 30 and 35-year follow-ups on patients now. And so we're seeing these patients that have been doing this approach that were very fat or very sick and now are very healthy. And the most common thing they tell you is, gee, you know, everybody they know has fallen apart. Here they are 30, 35 years later. In fact, my mother is a good example. When she was 92 years old, she realized she had outlived all 52 of her lifelong friends. Everybody she had known and everybody she had cared for was dead. Uh, all of her friends that used to make fun of her diet and all of the friends that made fun of her fasting had passed away. And she said, Alan, you need to warn your patients. If they're going to do this diet and lifestyle, make younger friends. And she said much younger.
1: It's actually a a real thing. In my anti-aging book, I I talk about that. Uh, If you're planning to live to at least 180 like I am, uh, <laughs> then you better start <laughs> having friends of different ages because you'll be very lonely and loneliness is one of the things that will kill you.
2: Well, people right? eating conventional diets uh, will deteriorate in their sixth, seventh, eighth decades if they get that long. Uh-huh. And you know that's where you see the heart attacks, the strokes, the cognitive decline. And the problem is if you, don't, if you delay that, if you are on a healthy program, you, you have a much better chance of delaying that infirmity. You won't spend The last 9.8 years in debility, like the average person, or 16 years in poor health. It's not that you're going to live forever, because we know that of the 100 billion modern humans that have been born on the planet, there's only been five individuals that are well-documented to have lived past 117. And so chances are that how long you live may largely be determined by genetics and luck. But how well you live... If you're going to live until you die because you went to sleep one night and didn't wake up, or if you're going to spend your last decade unable to talk or move, lying in some nursing home bed waiting for somebody to come and change your diaper because you stroked out, (laughs) that is going to be determined by what you put in your mouth and whether you exercise and perhaps your stress management and sleep habits. You know, There's other variables besides diet. But diet really is a dominant um, factor at preventing premature debility. And so, you know, what we encourage people to do is take the diet, sleep, and exercise really seriously and put their focus in making sure they get enough sleep, they get regular appropriate exercise to develop flexibility, strength, uh, balance, et cetera, and that they um, put a whole natural foods diet into their body and avoid meat, fish, fowl, eggs, dairy products, oil, salt, sugar, highly processed foods, and all the drugs and chemicals that people are basically subsisting on. And from our viewpoint, the patients we have doing that, now we've got long-term outcome data suggesting that at least that's one way to sustain long-term health. doesn't mean it's the only way. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way, because we haven't done the research with long-term outcome yet to show that one way is necessarily superior to another way. This is what we believe. This is what we're doing. This is what I'm practicing. And it does seem to be working well and so the the thing that's interesting is if you look for the common things between these different types of dietary approaches you find there's differences but there's a whole lot that that seems to be in common and and almost everybody agrees that refined carbohydrates are a problem they might debate about how much is acceptable we argue for none Um, Most people would agree that too much uh, uh, added salt in the diet can be a problem, particularly if people are salt sensitive and have blood pressure issues, edema, swelling. Um, They also recognize excess salt can be a problem with passive overeating, that the same food eaten to satiety without salt may be consumed at a larger quantity with salt because of the stimulation of passive overeating, and also the effect on the gut microbiome. You know, salt's a powerful preservative. That's how it's used you know, salted meats and other things to, pre- to preserve it because of its effect on bacteria. Well, you have five pounds of bacteria living in your intestinal tract, five pounds of living yep. creatures, a trillion creatures eating, drinking, and pooling inside you. So what you feed those bacteria affects how, you know, what kind of bacteria you have and how well they live. And I believe that there's evidence to suggest that soluble fibers are an important part of a normal microbiome. You, you don't obviously you don't get normal uh, bulk stool, and part of the benefit of having bulk stool is you don't get the straining. When you don't get the straining, you don't get the hemorrhoids, the fissures, you don't get the prolapsed uteruses, the varicose veins, the other things that come from chronic constipation. And chronic constipation is a fiber deficiency and mi- microbial imbalance. And now yes. as we learn more about the microbial imbalance, you know there's a thousand organisms uh, strains of organisms that live in the gut, in a healthy gut. But depending on the diet can profoundly affect the type of organisms that are there. One of the things that's neat with fasting is there's actually a rebooting of the microbiome that occurs uh, in fasting. And we believe that that rebooting of the microbiome may be an important part of why we see such tremendously consistent results in treating autoimmune disease. I
1: think your I think you're on to a major thing there. Have you done studies? I mean, it'd be easy to get a viome test or you know, look at the bacterial changes before and after. What do you find? When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to Dave for an exclusive 10% off.
2: Yes, we've done the first study on long-term water-only fasting on the gut microbiome. and We did this with Luigi Fontana from Washington University, where we um, took patients before and stool samples, and after. And those, those um, that's a completed study that has, is now being processed by Washington University. And I haven't seen the data yet back uh, from the changes. And the comments, of course, from Dr. Uh, uh, Fontana was, you know, it's really complicated because they're trying to isolate all these different strains. So I haven't seen the data yet. But what we see clinically is that these patients with microbiome uh, imbalances uh, tend to improve dramatically. We do really well in treating pr- conditions ranging from ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease uh, to the dysbiosis and pr- cr- chronic constipation, et cetera. Uh, it, it, that
1: makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm still puzzling over the salt thing. I mean, the, the former president of the American um, Hypertension Society, who instead of looking at the DASH studies and NHANES, these are big, you know, interviewing people about how much salt they think they eat, Uh, which is where a lot of the the anti-salt stuff comes from, Um, he actually looked at excretion of sodium and and actual sodium intake on 3,000 patients. And at the end of a couple decades of this work, one of his quotes was, if you want to live longer, eat more salt. And the reason for that was that when your sodium levels drop, your daily intake of sodium drops below about 2.5-ish, which is uh, a little bit lower than I think the the FDA is. It might be 2.1, I'm forgetting. Anyway, Is it 2.4? Thank you. Good. I I knew it was in the low twos, but I couldn't remember which one. Um, Your renin levels go up. And when renin levels go up, your heart attack risk goes up. And I know I feel like absolute garbage on a low salt diet. I mean, it it is ruinous for my health. What do you think is going on there?
2: So first of all, um, you got to be really careful about errors of attribution and association and causation realities in terms of uh, understand people on – Whole plant food SOS-free diets, uh, objective measures and incidence of cardiovascular disease dramatically drop. I mean, it's it's overwhelming. We've treated literally thousands of patients with cardiovascular disease, and we see very predictable and consistent responses, perhaps some of the most predictable responses that are actually in treating hypertension, which is one of the leading contributing causes of death and disability uh, in industrialized countries. So we know that this condition does respond well. It is true there's difference. Uh, in sodium sensitivity to people. And our diets are not no-salt diets. They're just relying on the sodium that's naturally pleasant in an extremely high plant food diet. So they're still getting uh, between 500 and 1,000 milligrams of sodium a day. It's not that there's not salt. It's the salt that's present in the food. But the food has to be coming from a larger volume of plant-based foods in order to get enough sodium in it. Uh, The other thing is we don't add sugar to the diet. Because you get yeah. all the carbohydrate you need from whole plant foods. And we don't add oil to the diet because it turns out the essential fatty acids, including the linoleic acid that you need to form the deicosohexohexonic acid, et cetera, are present if the whole plant food diet includes a variety of uh, nutritious foods. So, you know, we do use nuts and seeds and avocado and other foods, as well as fruits and vegetables, which also have their load of all the salt, sugar, and oil that people need. And so, I agree that many diets that are put together could be low in all kinds of things, but that's not true when the diet is ten to twelve percent of protein, fifteen to eighteen percent of calories of fat, the balance coming from whole plant food, complex carbohydrates. It, uh you know, it, it's interesting because
1: what a lot of people you know there's a lot of of just dogmatic kind of religious uh, perspectives uh, out there on, on this you know and people will come in and you know, if you eat another carb you're a bad person and you know you <laughs> eat another animal you're a bad person and what what it comes down to is is when you're going on any of these diets including the stuff that I recommend uh, and definitely what you're recommending is you're avoiding the vast majority of toxins yep. that are put in there by big food And you're not adding oil, so you're avoiding all of the processed seed oils that I think are just death, right? And you avoid that on the approach that I take as well. And and when you're fasting, you get none of the bad stuff. So I feel like a lot of aging comes from stuff that's in food. And then if we accept that might be a a case, whether it's man-made stuff from food and processing it inappropriately burning the food, you know, even if it's natural and grass-fed and organic and whatever else, you know, you burn, you char it, it does something different, right? Right. So fasting cleans all that out which is one of the reasons that it's it's a magic cure and then the big question is okay what do we put back in that's the least inflammatory that feeds the right the right gut microbes and all and I I don't think the answer is known for sure
2: well I think uh, that's an area of active research and I think yeah. you know that's that yeah. is you know critical question what is the best cleanest burning sources of, of, of calories for, you know, humans to eat. We have our own model that we follow, which is the exclusively whole plant food SOS free diet. Now the, what's interesting what is, is whole if you plant at, food mean. Cause like
1: you don't eat the means, shells of walnuts. Like I'm sure you peel well, your eggplants and, and like you're yeah, not really eating whole foods, right?
2: Well, we are eating whole plant foods that are minimally processed. The difference is, for example, if you wanted to eat, um, there's a big difference between eating a Food that's like vegetable foods that are whole versus you grind them up into a powder, you dehydrate them, you bake them at high temperature, you add sugar and salt, and you call it bread. If you want, under- there's a difference between say eating boiled wheat berries and eating bread. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, first of all, boiled wheat berries are kind of disgusting. You probably wouldn't eat them. I was anyway, going to say but- I wouldn't eat them. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> so what we're talking about is recognizing that, like for example, people talk about vegan diets. Well, you could Coca-Cola, French yeah. fries, potato chips. I mean, you could put the most disgusting diet together. And it would be it could be vegan if it didn't have animal foods in it. You can have a um, diet that's uh, a, a, a plant based diet, but that's full of highly processed refined carbohydrates could be a bunch of junk. But I'll tell you what I eat and what our patients eat, and give you if you know yeah. if they get up in the morning they may have uh, steamed squash, green vegetable materials. They might have. Uh, oatmeal, they may have some flax seeds. They, at lunch and dinner, we're going to have huge vegetable salads. Now, we we know that we have enough salad in front of us, even if we don't have a scale to measure it out, because anybody looking at our salads would go, oh my gosh, you're not going to eat all that, are you? Because yeah. they're you know, huge. And then large Good. amounts of steamed vegetables, particularly green okay. vegetables, your collard, your broccoli, your collards, and then enough starchy materials, whether it's starchy vegetable materials like hubbard and butter, squ- nut squash, sweet potatoes, etc., or uh, non glutinous grains, whether it's quinoa, rice, millet, whatever, or if they're able to digest them, things like uh, peas or beans. So that's the bulk of the diet. We use uh, portion-controlled amounts of uh, high-fat foods, so avocado, nuts, seeds, and we avoid everything else. I just tell patients, if you look at something and you really, really, really want it, you can't have it. You know, you get nothing because all the things you really want are these drug-like, highly processed, (laughs) fractionated foods that people, you know, get these cravings for. Uh, Whole plant foods, you love them. You'll love eating, but you're not going to – it doesn't matter so much if it's this one or that one. It's not the end of the world. You you know, you can go with the seasonal changes in availability. You don't have to rely on uh, packaged processed foods.
1: I remember when I was a raw vegan, uh, I did this very reliably, you know, very carefully composed and all, but I had to buy these salad bowls that were like the size yep. of the table just to get enough food in me. Yep. It That's was, absolutely it was really true. Rough.
2: Salad has 100 calories a pound. If you were going to try to live on salad, you'd need 20 pounds or more a day of salad. You can't do it's, it. If you started eating at 6 a.m., you didn't stop till midnight. You're not getting 20 pounds of salad in. Fruit, 300 calories a pound. a little bit higher caloric density, but still really high in sugar, low in mineral and fiber content compared to vegetables. You want the diet, from my opinion, to have a large amount of vegetable materials. And If you're not going to be using animal foods in the diet, you have to eat A very large volume of plant foods because they're very low caloric density. Now, that's good, especially initially for people that are overweight because they can eat a lot, they're still losing weight, their blood sugars are stabilized, you know, they do fine. Eventually, you get to where your efficiency does improve somewhat. You know, it's interesting, they used to think that fiber was completely indigestible. We know now that the microfiber in people eating large volumes of plant based foods actually does get as much as 60, 80 calories a day out of the actual fiber breakdown, which is really amazing when you think about it. And so yeah, over time, will, will modify, you get right? a little more ad- adapted and acclimated to eating these la- larger volumes of plant-based diet. And when people do this initially, oftentimes they do, not only are they detoxing, but they often don't feel that good energetically because they're literally making a conversion to burning a different fuel type you do get better and better at it. And believe me, people that do these diets over the long run not only get healthy, but they're able to sustain high levels of uh, energy. And actually, you can see many uh, examples of highly competitive athletes that do you know, plant-based diets and do very well. So you know, I don't think that there's uh, only one way to maintain high levels of energy, functional fitness. What I'm more concerned about is what type of diet is likely to be long-term sustainable that will uh, minimize the uh, likelihood of cardiovascular disease, and uh, cancer. And so, you know, that's really where I think the research has to focus is what's the best diets over the 20, 30, 40, 50 years that we're hoping that our patients are going to live.
1: Water fasting has merit um, and that what you eat before and after your fast makes a huge difference in how well the fast works.
2: No question. In fact, the, one of the things we always do is we want people on a, uh, a, a very clean diet for a couple of days before fasting. We want them off their addictive drugs, the caffeine, the alcohol, uh, recreational drugs. We want them off of animal products for 48 hours because the uh, lower fiber content tends to le- lend itself to more difficulties post-fasting in terms of constipation other issues. If they're eating just plant-based foods for a couple of days, we don't have any bowel activity issue uh, problems yeah. during or after fasting. Then they go through the fast, and then we ask them to stick strictly to a health-promoting diet and lifestyle for 50 years. Now, once we get our 50-year follow-ups, <laughs> they're free to do whatever they want. They can experiment with something else. But we just, in order to get our long-term outcome data, we ask them to stick strictly to the process. And the thing is, once they get into fasting, it changes everything. It does. And, really uh, and, and, and there's short-term fasting may have long-term benefit, and long-term fasting can have profound short-term impact. And we know now, in large part because of work done by uh, Longo and others, that fasting has some really profound effects on the biology that's going on in the body. We know that there's things like um, uh, insulin resistance, related uh, mechanisms with adenopectin and ghrelin and other things that are profoundly increased during fasting. We know that AMPK, for example, which has to do with uh, the downregulation of PGC1-alpha is impacted by fasting. We know that uh, the beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the normal fuel that the brains burn preferentially during fasting, has increased. And that's associated with increasing BDNF, the brain-derived neurotrophic yes. factor that's associated with preventing Alzheimer's disease and dementia. You know, he did research. They look at rats in a cage where the rats are genetically identical. They're fed exactly the same, but one rat has a wheel where it can exercise and it will. And the exercise in rats don't get the dementia changes. And they said, why? Well, it turns out it's increased BDNF that's protective against the nervous system. That goes up with exercise. It also goes up with fasting. In fact, what's interesting is almost all the biomarkers that go up with exercise go up with fasting. And you say, well, why is that? In exercise, you're vigorous, you're running around. In fasting, you have to lay around and not do anything. How could they both be affecting the same biomechanisms? And the reason maybe is that both are undoing the consequence of dietary excess, And when you undo the consequence of dietary excess, you'll double the lifespan of the rats. You'll make, we believe, make the humans live longer and better. And so it may be that just like exercise and fasting don't look like they would be the same kind of thing, they may be affecting the same mechanisms. And and it it keeps going. Insulin sensitivity, you can increase insulin sensitivity with exercise, you increase insulin sensitivity post-fasting. There's something called cellular stress resistance and cellular stress adaptation. Alongo did research with rats where he took rats that uh, both have cancer, and they um, give chemotherapy to the first group of 30 rats, and they all die because the chemotherapy at the high enough level to kill off all the cancer cells kills the rats, which is not very good. So then you take the same rats with the same cancer, but you fast them short periods before, during, after fasting, all the rats survived, dramatically enhances cancer-free survival because fasting makes the cancer cells more vulnerable because they don't do as well in a low-glucose environment, a high-ketone environment, and it helps protect the healthy cells from the consequences of the chemotherapy. And it was at that point that uh, oncologists often went, well, wait a second. So fasting allows us to do more chemotherapy with less consequence. All of a sudden, fasting went from Quackery to cutting edge research, and now all of a sudden there's some interest. Uh, in fact, what they're trying to come up with right now are what are called fasting mimicking drugs. Yes, not just like fasting mimicking diets, but fasting mimicking drugs. So drugs that mimic some of the physiological effects that occur in fasting. And although that's very interesting, I would suggest we don't have to worry about fasting mimicking drugs. We can do fasting, and if we use fasting, we can induce the changes that they're so hardly are so hard. Hard working on trying to mimic. Forget about mimicking it. Let's actually do it. And then the bigger thing may be the changes in gut microbiome. We know that there seems to be big changes. I can't quantify what those changes are yet, but you know, we will be able to eventually do that. And that's part of the research that we're working on. We also know that fasting decreases things that are critical, also that are decreased in exercise oftentimes. For example, glucose and insulin are profoundly yes. and insulin sensitivity are profoundly affected. IGF-1. Uh, Insulin growth factor one, reduced profoundly both in exercise and with fasting. Um, Leptin, uh, blood pressure and heart rate, profoundly affected. As I said, the largest effect size ever shown in treating hypertension. Uh, mTOR, mammalian target of uh, rampamycin, which uh, that goes down, but that's associated with increasing autophagy. And so you've got the Nobel Prize in 2016 to a guy that's recognized the importance of autophagy, the ability of the body's Finally. white cells to eat up cancer cells and detoxify itself. Um, we talked about uh, the microbiome changes, and that's a whole interesting area that I, I think is just being looked at. Uh, the inflammatory markers, IL-6, TNF-alpha, all these fancy biomarkers that we're just now being able to get to start to measure. Again, consistently, predictably reduced with fasting, as is inflammation. And it's possible that inflammation itself is really what's behind, the driving force behind the diseases of uh, ca- heart disease and cancer and so many other things uh, that we're seeing. So. That I'm saying that there's a lot in common between whether it's uh, intermittent fasting changes, water fasting changes, exercise, and all of these attempts to reduce dietary excess. All of them are essentially trying to reduce inflammation, get rid of gut leakage, and give the body a chance to heal itself from the consequences of a highly processed food diet, whether it's processed animal foods or processed plant-based foods.
1: Well, it's uh, it, it's fascinating that you've been doing this for so long. You're seeing the results. Uh, I uh, actually I have one more question. Let's talk about coffee. Now, it, it's all a whole. I guess it's not really a whole food unless you eat the coffee cherry, uh, which you can do. I use it one of my supplements that raises um, BDNF four times more than exercise. But uh, the the coffee bean itself. Okay, you, you're you're into plants. And it seems like caffeine, well, not seems, there's a study from UC San Diego, it doubles ketone production, the amount of caffeine in two small cups of coffee. So why the hate on caffeine?
2: Well, caffeine is a highly addictive nervous system drug. It has a 17-hour half-life. It affects the quality of sleep. Even, even coffee that's taken in the morning still has a measurable effect on sleep quality. It's, uh, uh, coffee itself can be really irritating to the gastrointestinal system. And you know, ask people with gastritis how they feel about drinking coffee. But compared to
1: kale, are... coffee is not
2: anywhere well, near <laughs> I'm not saying there's not other things that are also <laughs> irritating and the fact that coffee's less bad than something else doesn't make it good necessarily from my viewpoint so we're we're kind of uh, down on all these uh all these uh, drugs including caffeine and you know you, people don't go through you know severe headaches cuz they stop drinking uh, stop eating carrots but they certainly do when they stop drinking but
1: if they stop coffee. exercising if someone who exercises every day and gets their endorphin high and stops for 3 days they yeah, get just as cranky as if they too. quit
2: coffee yeah, that's true that's that <laughs>
1: right? <would be> true <laughs> so, so I, i'm kind of like you I, know, I really i would quit drinking coffee tomorrow if i could see the evidence that it was going to lengthen my life or improve the quality of life but the evidence i keep finding is that I Google any medical condition in coffee, and you're like, wow, it seems like it's generally doing more harm, or more good than harm. So, you in, know, like McDougal says, people love
2: love good news about their bad habits. So, you know, I would argue that people make the same argument for red wine because it's got resveratrol. Yeah, but those
1: arguments don't hold up in, in the studies. No, science, that's true. The they, don't, they, they hold up even right.
2: less well than the, than the argument that coffee but, some type of health food. Yeah, I. i we gotta not, disagree are, on something. If we agreed on everything, there'd be absolutely no reason for you to even have me on this show because you no, know, I are on I like the same learning. page. So,
1: <laughs> I, I'm I'm looking like do you like, oh, coffee raises this one substance that's really bad, and 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 so I, I'm I'm always curious. I, I could be wrong on anything. I'm pretty sure I'm right on coffee because it's like every year another study comes, like, oh, people live longer, oh, less cancer, oh, you know, all these things, and and I'm just like, okay. I'm pretty sure it's there, and I know that it makes fasting a lot easier because that doubling of ketone production in the morning um, is, is, wow, okay, ketones go up, ghrelin goes down, and then um, CCK goes up, and then you just don't think about food, and then the willpower component goes away because most people who are listening, if they're doing an intermittent fast or even a longer one, they still have a job, and their kids are hanging off their arms, and they're trying to do their job, and everyone's locked in their houses if they're in California, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm like, how do I balance fasting with the other stresses of life.
2: I agree that one of the important ways to get the most benefit of fasting is to do fasting in a restful state. And that's what we talk about. You know, we prefer, especially long-term fasting needs to be done in a controlled setting under direct supervision where there's been a history exam, lab, proper monitoring. And in those cases, there would be no reason to artificially stimulate the nervous system with exogenous drugs like caffeine because you're in a restful state. I'm not really an expert at how do you do fasting in a home environment raising kids and you know that's not something I've had a lot of experience with. So maybe it's possible that intermittent fasting may have to be treated differently. I would really defer to people like Walter Longo and others that are really experts in that type of thing. That's not my area of expertise. What I'm good at is taking people in a controlled setting doing long-term fasting doing it safely and effectively and particularly in treating the condition that we're commonly working with, the diabetes, the hypertension, the autoimmune disease, and the lymphoma, or with healthy people. That, and I think that's who gets the best benefit about mo- from moderate-term fasting, this, this five to ten days of fasting, in healthy people that do it periodically because they want to stay healthy and end up living a long life and having a good death when they go to sleep and don't wake up. I could be wrong about that, but that's one of the studies we're starting next year, is that intermittent fasting every day, and then occasionally a longer-term fast in a restful state is going to actually help us keep people alive the longest time possible.
1: I I believe you're 90% right on that, and I want to see if the study <laughs> I'm just results. wrong
2: about the coffee, right?
1: <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not about the coffee. Here's the caveat, and, and this is something that um, I've really looked at over the last 10 years, because intermittent fasting has been a core part of the Bulletproof diet the book came out in 2014, but I started publishing it in 2011. And what I find is that especially people who have a lot of weight to lose, who haven't done you know long-term fast uh, like, like you do at your clinic, um, if they start doing intermittent fasting every day, they feel amazing for the first couple weeks. But then, and women hit the wall first they typically say, wow, my sleep quality just started declining, and I don't know why. And then my cycle's off, and then my hair starts thinning. And it usually takes about six weeks of everyday intermittent fasting. And usually they'll say, I feel so good, I'm just going to go to one meal a day. And what I found is that, that especially for women, but also for men with a lot of weight to lose, intermittent fasting, three days, five days a week, but then having a, a morning breakfast, and and my my experience, you would want a higher protein, higher healthy fat, not higher any fat um, breakfast, but maybe you could do it with a high starch, low fat approach. It probably would work. But you, you do that sometimes, partly to keep the metabolic flexibility high, but also because fasting is a hormetic stressor. And I think they just get overstressed until they become acclimated to fasting, and then they can start doing every day intermittent fasting.
2: Right. Remember, though, um, that any time there's rapid weight loss, There's hormonal changes that uh, whether it's pregnancy, okay, or whether it's fasting, or if you increase uh, activity significantly, anytime there's rapid weight loss, there are changes, and you may be right. These are maybe neuroendocrine mediated or others that be associated with temporary hair thinning. You don't lose any follicles. There's what's happening is hair. You're under nutritional stress. The body affects the hair growth. There's some conservation. Everything comes out together. So there's what looks like thinning overall. Hair integrity is maintained if if uh, thyroid function is, is normalized. So I, I think it's a cortisol issue. It, it ha- they, they just cortisol because that affects
1: the sleep and and then the thyroid. And when the cortisol but, goes back down, the hair follicles should come back. So, and they they do. And we see this. this, It doesn't happen.
2: A month post long term fasting, you'll see this phenomena uh, frequently when there's been a lot of weight loss. So, I think what you're doing is anything you do to modulate how rapid that initial weight loss is probably modulates. I don't know that it's necessary because it's a temporary phenomena. You know, it's not associated with. Decrease physiological function. It's just this is one of the things that happens. And it's just like, you know, initially there's more skin sag until the body's able to recover. There's less of that with water fasting than there is with, say, uh, high protein diets. Now, I want to be clear, you know, these higher fat approaches are different than the people that are advocating high protein approaches. High protein is just bad for you. Yeah. And and that's also an area we can all agree. I don't think anybody that's thinking about it is advocating high well, the, animal the protein. The carnivore people diets.
1: Are, are, are having great results, and and they're all in the green zone on the bulletproof diet. It's only grass fed. They're eating thirty five percent of their calories from uh, from uh, from fat, and sometimes a little bit more. But you know what? I, I fully support going a hundred percent plant based, starch vegan for a month, and go carnivore for a month. Right? Like those are probably both. In fact, if you did every other ones, there's a really good argument for raising mtor, lowering mtor. Uh, but I, I'm pretty darn sure that a very high protein um, from even grass-fed animals or from it, especially from industrial animals over long periods of time um, is not going to be good because it raises mTOR and it stays up forever. You get cancer, you get old, you die, even if you're muscular
2: and ripped a lot of the time. Right. So again, what's good for short-term athletic performance, what's good for even maximum athletic performance isn't necessarily what's good for long-term sustained health. And that's where I think the research has to really look at now is not— how do you get the biggest muscle the fastest? That's certainly one one question. The the real question is, what's going to sustain long-term disease-free health the longest? And that's where we can certainly debate about what the best strategy is. It sounds like we agree on an awful lot of things. We may disagree on some things. Let's let the research decide ultimately. And then I can come back and say, see, I was right and you were wrong and I'll be happy.
1: Uh, I, I think we'll, we'll race. And when we're both 100 and something, uh, we'll arm wrestle and we'll say... <laughs> um, Alan, it's... Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. And just so for everyone who's listening, um, would I do a water fast at True North Health uh, if I had a major health thing? Yeah. Like, like the, the risk reward is exceptionally high for that. Would I stick with a high starch, low fat diet? I've tried that multiple times for my constitution. I don't think it's going to work, but it might work for you right? And the important thing to learn from anything and any of the Bulletproof stuff I talk about, you got to do what works and what's what works in the life you live in the body you live in. And there is a path here with long-term water fasting supervised because it's necessary and eat what works for you. And that's what that's what's most important. So Alan, thanks, man. Thanks for your well, work. Thanks, thanks, thanks for this sharing
2: interview. my message. And uh, I'll look forward to having you come up and we'll, uh, we'll do the fast at the center. Uh I
1: think that is going to be fantastic, of course, we might have to wait till all this covid uh you know shutting everything down for uh questionable reasons uh gets finished
2: I just wanted to mention if any of your viewers are interested in whether fasting might be relevant to them, we offer a free service if they go to our website and complete the registration forms, they call and I'll be happy to talk with them and give them my best opinion about whether fasting might be something that they want to consider
1: that is uh that's a cool, very cool offer thank you and the the website is
2: TrueNorthHealth.com.
1: TrueNorthHealth.com. All right, so you guys are all welcome to do that. I would just encourage you um, to remember that coffee is a whole food, plant based substance that is important for life. And as long as you remember that, I'm kidding. (laughs) Alan, (laughs) uh, I appreciate our differences. I appreciate your work, and, and thanks for being on the
2: show. My pleasure.